Today on Unbeatable, I get a chance to interview Landry Peden. Now, I just learned about Landry a couple of weeks ago, and when I started to hear this story, I was blown away. To be honest, at a point, I thought, this can't be true. This really didn't happen. What you're going to hear from this episode today is Landry is an incredibly strong, very powerful woman. And I'm not just talking about her muscles. I'm talking about a woman who faced unimaginable trauma in the home and was able to face down fear and become a better person, actually to use her story to help others like her. Landry suffered extreme domestic abuse, and she's going to tell you what happened and how that story unfolded on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey Landry, thank you so much for agreeing to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you and I got connected through a friend and I don't want to miss the opportunity to give a huge shout out to Aaron, our mutual friend that got us connected. And Aaron said, you got to hear Landry's story. It's <laughs> incredible. And sure enough, Aaron was right. Your story is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, how did you and Aaron meet, by the way? So um, kind of in the beginning of my like transformation, if you will. Um, I really started posting on Instagram and other social media platforms about PTSD awareness um, through like fitness healing. And he actually started following me kind of from the beginning. And we connected there and talked about the military and kind of some of the things that we had been through. And eventually he actually had me do kind of a Q&A with his gym with some of his members to kind of just talk about like what I went through and like how I've used CrossFit and other forms of fitness to kind of heal. So. Well, so for the listener, you just got a little foretaste of where this episode (laughs) is going to go. Landry has an amazing story, but for both of us, we want to say thanks, Aaron Billingsley for getting us connected. Thanks for giving Landry uh, a place to start to tell this story. So Landry, we did a little research about you before I did this episode, and I want the listeners to learn a little bit about what life was like growing up for you, because there's a specific part of your childhood that I think some people listening would relate to. So describe a little bit about what life was like before you joined the U.S. Army. Okay. Um, So I basically came out of the womb wanting to win. Um, I started sports (laughs) when I was little. (laughs) Like I was four years old and I started gymnastics. And from there, I wanted to do every sport I possibly could and be the best at it. Um, And that kind of gets me to where I'm at today. But um, growing up, I had, I'm the oldest of four girls and I had a father figure who I thought was my real dad up until I was 16 years old. Um, there was a lot of like mental abuse that went on as a kid and I used sports as my way of getting away from that. Um, so I was a dual sport athlete so that I didn't have to be home. Um, and when I was 16, my parents went through a divorce and I found out that 
my dad wasn't my real dad. What? And yeah. So they didn't know you until they were until you were 16 and they were getting a divorce. Yeah. Wow. Because it came down to the custody battle of whether we had to go to visitation or not. As a part of the fight, the court fight, like, hey, she's not even your real daughter. That's how you found out? That's how I found out. So, you know, we we went through all of that and then um as I got older, so one of the reasons why I joined the military was actually because I was sick of being kind of like beaten down. Um, I was bullied as a kid too, because I didn't, I didn't fit the mold of women, or I should say okay. girls. <laughs> I'm a woman now. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Um, I was very muscular as a kid, very athletic. And so I got made fun of and I got beat up a lot because I looked different because it was either you were very skinny and frail or you were overweight. There wasn't that like muscular physique that you see nowadays that's more mainstream. Um, So one of my drives for joining the military was one to never allow myself to be abused again. (laughs) Um, And I was afraid of men because of what I went through with my stepdad and so I wanted to toughen up. And the other motivation was my grandfather, who was like the biggest role model in the whole wide world yeah. for me. He was the only like father figure that I had. Um, he kind of took me in as his daughter instead of his granddaughter. And he yeah. passed away right after I graduated high school. And he was in the military. He was airborne. He was stationed at Fort Bragg. And so that made me want to join the military really? um, yeah. in his honor. So there was a couple different, there was like a sad side and then there was like a, I yeah. want to make him proud. Um, so then I was in the military for a couple of years, met my husband. Well, he's my now ex-husband, um, became a, a pregnant and with the like health background and stuff with possible baby on the way, I really wanted to find out who my real dad was because my mom wouldn't tell me who he was. Yeah. Um, and I was digging, digging, digging. And so, finally, while I was, oh. when you asked mom, Hey, I want some mm-hmm. information about my real biological father. She said, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now you have to dig. I'm sorry. Keep yeah. going. No, you're okay. Um, so I was looking all through social media. Like I knew that he was from big rapids, Michigan. Um, cause I grew up just a few, like probably 30 minutes outside of big rapids. Mm-hmm. So like to find out that my real dad was like within reach, like all this wow. time. Um, but eventually her best friend came forward and told me what his name was. And I was able to find against him on Facebook. Mom, was that against your mom's wishes that she told you that? Yeah. <laughs> really? Wow. This gets even better. Yeah. Uh, right? So you realize like that your real TV. biological dad is only a few minutes uh, drive away. What happens yeah. next? Yeah, I'm on the edge of my so, seat. I got to know what happens next. <laughs> so I messaged him on Facebook. And so at that time, I was 23. Um, and then it was five years later, I got a message on Facebook. And it was him. He waited five years to respond to your message on Facebook. You're 28 years old. At 16, you learn you're not, your stepdad is not your biological father. And you don't, it takes you another 12 years to find out who your real biological father is. Yeah. Wow. So he reached out and we connected. 
Um, he was still in Michigan at that time. He was in and out of rehab facilities because I found out that he was an addict. Um, and that was part of why my mom was kind of hiding him from me because yeah. when she became, yeah, when she became pregnant with me, he had gotten hurt on a job site, uh, when he was like 19 oh, and became because I've heard it a hundred times. Yeah. Keep going. Yep. Became addicted to opiates, um, because of the painkillers uh -huh. and it took over his life and he was addicted to alcohol. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to meet him. I wanted him to be a part of my life. So he came down to Toledo back in 2014 and we spent some time together and stayed connected. I got connected with my grandmother, um, my uncle. I found out I'm an only child of his, so I don't have any siblings. Um, but, you know, dealing with a parent that has an addiction problem, that was really hard for me. And especially coming from the military background, like the, the main thing they do for us with like mental health issues is just throw medication. Yeah at us which happened to me personally um i actually because of him so i met him in 2014 i was working for verizon at the time i had gotten out of the army in 2013. Uh -huh. um i started to notice like health problems um that i didn't really fully understand um i was having severe panic attacks i was waking up every morning throwing up I would have like kind of blackout anger issues, um, just kind of some erratic behavior that I didn't understand. Um, and then finally went to the VA to get help and they prescribed me like 10 different medications that, that like they couldn't even fully explain to me like what all of them did, um, which was concerning. I actually did wow. a post about it years ago. Um, and I expressed to them when I was going through the intake that my father was an addict and I didn't want any of that. If there was any way to not take medication to heal. Um, and that's when, you know, a veteran friend of mine dragged me to CrossFit <laughs> and basically yeah. saved my life because I was ready well, to end it. <laughs> you use the word transformation and I want to tell the people that are listening to this and not watching it. If you're driving right now. If you're if you've got this image of Landry being this young woman who's small and uh, proper, mm -hmm. what I'm looking at is a very strong, very uh, uh, large woman. And by large, I mean your shoulders and your arms are literally <laughs> bigger than mine. You look like you just finished a bodybuilding competition. That's I get that a lot. <laughs> and I'm thinking about all of those little girls that used to bully you and pick on you in school. I wish they could see what you look like now and the sheer <laughs> terror that would go through their mind looking at this power lifter. Literally, you're a power lifter looking yeah. at this power lifter today. Um, Landry, I got to go back for just a second because I'm thinking you're a girl, you're a young woman but you um, learn in the worst possible circumstances that your father is not your biological dad. And then you yeah. spend all of this time and hard work trying to find your biological dad. And I can't help but think you must have been disappointed. Were you frustrated 
when you learned that your real biological father has basically, his life has been consumed with drugs and alcohol. How did that impact you? Um, it was very hard. It was very painful. Um, I will say I wasn't disappointed in him um, because of my experience with the military, just seeing a lot of my friends become addicts, including my ex-husband, who we will get to in a minute. Yeah, so when I found out that he was an addict, um, I was just very sad because I feel like the system failed him and yeah. I wanted to be there for him no matter what. Um, but it was very hard to see him in those circumstances. Like for instance, uh, Thanksgiving of 2015, I got a call from a payphone telling me that he was checking into rehab. Um, uh-huh because he wants, he wanted to be a better father and a better grandfather. Cause I do have a 14 year old son. I mean, he was younger then, but, um, you know, so stuff like that was not easy. Um, because you feel helpless because you know yeah. that it's such an ugly thing that right. he can't control and it could have been avoided. Is he still in your life? Um, he actually passed away last, uh, oh, June. Yeah. So sorry. Uh, yeah, he um, he had a heart attack while he was driving, um, and he was on life support for a little over a week, um, and then that was that. But the the good news is is that he was actually sober. Um, really, they yeah. did a toxicology, and there was nothing yeah. in his system. So. Uh-huh. Well, now let's get to the point where I need to catch the listeners up on how you end up in the Veterans Administration. And I hope that nobody missed this number. And they're pushing 10 different pills across the counter at you, trying to help you deal with some struggles. Um, Mm -hmm. Granddad was in the military. He was an airborne paratrooper stationed in Mm -hmm. Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and you wanted to follow in his footsteps. So you joined the army and let's talk about your time. You spent what, uh, just about nine or 10 years in the army. Is that right? Yep. Nine and a half years between active duty and reserve. All right. So tell everybody uh, what it was like for you in the military, because it's never easy for anybody in the military and definitely not easy on women. So describe going into the military and then what it was like for you. So going into the military, I'm very thankful, first of all, that I did join because although I left with a lot of scars, I learned a lot. I learned to have thick skin. I learned what I'm capable of and I learned never to give up. And I also learned, you know, you got to be there for your buddies. Um, And that's kind of where I've become like, like the power lifter and what I do for the community. Now I learned that Um, my initial early experiences in the military, it was very hard. Um, You mentioned like as a woman, um, I was one of the only females in my platoon. I had to people prove that are myself. driving and they don't recognize the military. Tell everybody the numbers, like one of the only women among how many guys? So I was in a unit of a little over 200 people and there was maybe like 12 of us. Uh-huh. So um, in my platoon, I was the only female for a while, um, but I had to really like learn to be 
tough as nails because those guys would test me um, because they had the mentality that all women are weak and they used to really treat me pretty badly. Um, I had to earn my respect and a lot of times I had to do a lot of extra work, um, almost breaking my body to show that I could handle it. Um, like for instance, we did, we would always have to do like a, a rough March certification uh-huh. every year. And I dislocated my hip at mile six and I still had six miles to go. And I was not about to quit. And I literally crossed the finish line, dragging my right leg behind me and went and right to the infirmary to get put back together, like literally. Um, and like that day, I remember like the the guys in my my platoon were just like, wow, like you don't have quit in you. And I'm like, hell no, I don't. Like, but that was like the, the life. And then it was also hard um, being one of the only women because there was some bad guys out there. Um, yeah. The big problem, you know, like I look back at the Vanessa story from recent, you know, she had some issues with a male and her voice was not heard. And unfortunately her, she's not here to talk about her survival because she didn't make it. Um, I, as a female, I was stalked. Um, people would get my information because there was a roster on the, the staff mm-hmm. duty. Um, and so they knew where my room number was when I lived in the barracks. They knew what my phone number was. Um, we, one of my first experiences as a new soldier at Fort Drum, that was my initial duty station. They had to board off all of the lower level windows because we had an engineer unit in our barracks that had females on the bottom floor and males were breaking into their windows and raping them. Um, And that's the stuff that you don't hear about on the news. And that's stuff that happens a lot, unfortunately. Um, And when I was a young soldier, I was an E4. Um, I was sexually assaulted by an E6 and I fought him off. And I was told by a female attorney because I pressed charges that because I fought him off, and there wasn't enough evidence, I didn't have a leg to stand on. And they weren't willing to ruin his career over my accusations. Um, So that was, I was 21 when that happened. Um, So that kind of goes along with, you know, you hear a lot of women say they're afraid to come forward because there's not help there. And I can vouch because I went through that. Um, And that is part of my PTSD now. Um, And then... I ended up, you know, meeting my now ex-husband at Fort Drum. He was combat armed. He was a Cav Scout. Um, Just living that life was hard, you know, as a soldier and as a spouse. It was very difficult because you see both sides of it. And sometimes you had to be a little more um, calloused, if you will, because like I worked up at Brigade Headquarters for one of his deployments. And my uh, command sergeant major forgot that he was over in the Cornegal Valley when everything was going on mm-hmm. and they were being ambushed. And he came in and said that it's a suicide mission and we think like we might be getting phone calls and we're going to have to reach mm-hmm. out to spouses. And I'm like, <laughs> that's me. As, as you're so, raising your hand, then you must be talking about me because that's my husband's yeah. unit. Yeah. Yeah. 
he felt uh, really bad. <laughs> but. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, I've talked to more than a couple of uh, warriors in this podcast and you definitely are unbeatable Landry. I mean, just the stuff that you went through in your home growing up with your mm -hmm. biological father and the military. But the real reason I wanted you to be on this show is to talk about your ex-husband. Um, you and I had a pretty lengthy phone conversation about this. And the longer the conversation went, the more I was just in awe of what you went through and how you conducted yourself. So the listeners have just heard you met your husband, ex-husband now, mm -hmm. while you were yeah. in the military. Let's talk about what happened. Let's talk about what happened to your marriage and what ended, how did this thing end up with your husband? But I need you to give everybody all of the details that you gave me over the okay. phone. Yes, of course. Um, okay. So I met my um, ex-husband when I was 22. What's his um, first name? Fort Joe. Anthony. Okay. So you met um, Anthony. I still, I still mm -hmm. have his last name because the way that our divorce happened, it was just, it was insane, which I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but um, basically we met when I was 22. Um, we got married pretty soon um, within the first year. Um, I became pregnant with our son, Gabriel. Um, and he was worried about finances because of the baby. Um, so he volunteered to deploy shortly after my son was born. Okay. I already um, know the answer to this, but for the listeners, they don't know why would he go overseas if you're worried about money? Yeah, because you get paid extra money, especially yeah. with him being combat arms. Right. He got hazard pay and extra pay. Yeah on top of what we already had for a normal and, um, and stipend money while you're over there mm -hmm. and all of that. So there's a big financial incentive. If for the listeners, there's a big financial incentive to go overseas and get shot at because mm -hmm. of the extra pay that you get. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, you're okay. So that was his second deployment. So his first deployment was, I met him right when he came back from his first deployment, which mm -hmm. he, he was one of those that I don't know if you remember or if you followed it, but though everybody got extended. So they had done their 12 months and I they were on the bird to come home mm -hmm. and they turned them back around in another like five months, you know? Yeah. Um, so he, he was over there for like 16 months um, total, the first deployment. Yeah. I came home, I met him, and that's when we kind of started the whole thing. Um, and then he redeployed in February of 2009, because my son was born November 2008, just to kind How of give you a timeline. When he, went, when he deployed that time? Like a year. Okay. So, um, so still very new. Um, so he deployed to Afghanistan. For the second time um at first it was okay um we would have communications back and forth like normal uh like kind of how we're doing here phone calls um and then towards the end of the deployment he started acting a little erratic like he would call home and start threatening that he was going to take my son away that i was like not being a good mom and he was unhappy 
and it was well, just very strange. It was like out of his... He's saying these things to you. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, but then the next day he would call and be like, I love you. You're amazing. You know, it was like back and forth, like bipolar, I guess. Uh-huh. So I started voicing my concerns um, when he got home. I didn't want to stress him out with what he was saying, what's going on, because I know like as a soldier myself, that's the last thing that you need to do is bring home yeah. drama to what they're dealing with over there. So I just kind of like sucked it up, left it alone. So when he got home, I suggested that we went to counseling, um, which in most cases it's frowned upon as NCOs, soldiers, to go get help because it shows that you're weak. Um, but he agreed at first and then decided that Reenlisting, so switching duty stations would be a good idea. Um, his best friend, who would, who was on the first two deployments with him, had just reenlisted to go down to Fort Stewart in Georgia, um, and was like, "Hey, man, this is a really good place. It would be a good place to start over. Why don't you and your family come down here?" And So at that time, I had transitioned from active duty to the reserves. Uh So I was able to easily move um, down there. Um, I had suggested we didn't because when he went to get the reenlistment contract, it stated that he had to waive his dwell time. So for those of you that don't know what that means is generally when you deploy for a year, you get a year off to kind of reset and like recover from all of that stress. And then you're good to go after that. Back in the pipeline again. Yep. Yep. So it had a little statement in there that said you're you're able to, you know, PCS to Fort Stewart. So move down to Fort Stewart. Yep. But you have to waive your dwell time. So he did against my wishes. And sure enough, we got down to Fort Stewart in April of 2010. And he was immediately put on deployment orders to Iraq. So we got down there. He deployed, I want to say it was June of 2010. Uh And by September, I was at a friend's house. Um, Her husband was also deployed with mine at the time. She had like four kids and we used to just get together and like do dinners together. I would help her with her kids because I just had one. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, And I'm cooking dinner and all of a sudden I get a phone call. Mind you, I had just talked to him the day before. Um, He said, hey, what are you doing? Can you come pick me up? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) And he said, what are you talking about? Right. Right. So I'm like, I'll pick you up from where? And he's like, I'm, I'm on post. I'm at the warrior transition unit. And I'm like, um, sure. But like, why are you called? Did you get you shot? You were like, coming back to the U.S. Yeah. Right. I'm like, did something happen? Like, cause the first thing is like, usually when people get sent home, it's because they're injured. Yeah. I was like, did something happen that I don't know about? Like, did you get blown up? Did you like, you're going to look like Swiss cheese when you come in the door? Like what happened? Uh-huh. And he wouldn't tell me. And he's like, I'll tell you later. So I go and pick him up and, you know, we're on the way home and he, he just kind of told me what's that. Is he, is he all busted up when you pick him up? Is nope. he shot up when you, get, when you pick him nope. up? Nope. Okay. He was fine. So I knew something had happened, but I didn't know what. So then he starts telling me 
that he had a mental breakdown and he said some stuff to a soldier and they sent him home. But he did not tell me the extent of it, which I find out later. Explain something to the listener. No one gets sent home from combat for a simple problem that you're dealing with mentally, Mm -hmm. emotionally, psychologically. That never, ever happens. As Landry's saying, if you didn't get blown up or lose some limbs or (laughs) shot up really bad, you're the only other way you're going home is something is really, really wrong here. And at this point, Mm -hmm. Landry's husband is back in the States. She didn't even know that he arrived. She knows by being a soldier, something is really, really wrong here. But on the outside, he looks fine. And the unit's not telling her anything. Sorry for the interruption. I just needed to explain No, you are okay. No, you're good. Yeah, because it was was crazy to me because I'm like, there's something seriously wrong, which I find out later from somebody in his unit that he had actually turned his rifle on one of the soldiers in a cafeteria overseas in Iraq and threatened to kill him because the guy made him mad. And Mm -hmm. that's what happened. So they're sending me somebody home that's violent, didn't tell me. So that's when the abuse at home started. So he still hadn't divulged this information to me, by the way. So I'm, I'm just trying to get him help. So the first thing that I did as soon as I found out that he was relieved for a mental issue was I reached out to behavioral health. I reached out to his command because he was going to be basically on what would be kind of like, you know, the unit, like yeah, detail, like he's helping in the back, like helping right. with soldiers that need to process those sorts of things. Um, cause he was E5 at the time. Um, And so I went to his unit, told him that he was having mental issues and that we needed to get those addressed. You know, I went to behavioral health. Behavioral health was really good. I will say at Fort Stewart, they were very concerned. Um, So we started both marital counseling and we also did separate counseling. Uh Um, And after a couple of months, because that's when the violence was like starting to happen, like he would... He's held knives to my throat. He held a knife over my head one time when I was feeding my son. And he was like, I wonder what would happen if I dropped this right now. Um, He picked me up by my throat one time and threw me into the couch. Um, We had a roommate at the time that witnessed that. Um, And, you know, I I knew that that wasn't the man that I married um, because he had never been violent. Like he was never that type of person. So we, we we're going through counseling and I'm, I'm reporting this stuff to the counselors. I'm like, okay, he's starting to get violent with me, both physically and, you know, emotionally. Yeah. They decided to have an intervention. So what they wanted to do, and I was in full support of this, and I think it would have saved a lot of things. Um, they wanted to take him out of the unit and put him in warrior transition unit, which is like kind of a rehabilitation center. Yeah. It could be right. anywhere from like mental health or physical whatever that looks like, or just transitioning out of the military. Um, And they wanted to put him in there for like a minimum of six months. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically he would be living on grounds. I would not be living with him, but I could go and do like supervised visitation with our son until he was like good to go. So we were all for that. He was too. All we needed was his commander to sign off on that. So the the board of behavioral health at Fort Stewart held a meeting, called his commander in and was like, here's the situation. This is what we want to do. All we need is for you to sign off and release him from his position so we can do this. 
and his commander refused. So that was the nail in the coffin. Um, that's, that was like the day that my life turned into absolute hell. Um, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but the listeners are wanting mm -hmm. to know what happened to your husband that made this switch flip inside him. Like you, you already mentioned, this is not the man that I married. What happened to him? Mm -hmm. The exposure to the violence overseas, the stress of combat. Um, he was in, um, like if anybody's seen that uh, special on Netflix, Rest Repo, he was the unit that was relieved um, by the, the guys that they show in Rest Repo. Like yeah. he, he helped build a lot of the fobs that are out in Afghanistan, um, Camp Keating. Uh, that was his lieutenant um, mm -hmm. who died. Um, they were exposed to, they were starving um, because of some of these fobs that they were building out there. There was nothing out there. They were up in these mountains. Um, they weren't able to get resupplied because of the weather a lot of times. Um, and so a lot of these guys came back looking like they had been in a concentration camp. They mm -hmm. had lost so much weight. They were literally killing wildlife to try to have food sometimes, melting snow for water. Like these were like some of the logistics things that were coming through uh, at Fort Drum. Um, or if you guys remember the helicopter crash, there was 10 soldiers that were killed back in 2006 um, in Afghanistan. That was his squadron commander, his best friend and multiple people in his unit that he was friends with, he was literally standing on the mountaintop where the bird took off and watched it uh -huh. crash. They ran down the hill and all they, he said that all he saw was body parts and just shrapnel. Everything was everywhere. They got down to the bird. It was on fire. They heard the last guy screaming and then it went silent and uh -huh. he had to carry the bodies out. So there was a lot. Um, so, He'd been ambushed multiple times. Like he was in the Cornigal Valley having fire like shot down at him for days on end, not knowing if he was going to make it home. Like they had to write letters that basically was like, if you're reading this, I'm gone. Um, so I can't even imagine um, what he went through. And the, the problem that we saw like when he came back is like, there's no, there's no help for that. Like there's yeah. no like detuning that. And right. We're not robots. We're humans. Yeah, I just and I wanted people to hear this prolonged exposure to combat, yeah. to death, and yeah. to violence. Um, and surely that's going to leave an impact for the rest of your life on somebody. But none of that excuses what happens next. Mm -hmm. So you just described no. it as life became hell for you. What happens yeah. next? So the violence started getting really bad um, to the point where. I was terrified not talking to be in just house. And I don't ever want to make light of this. We're not talking just domestic violence and simple abuse here. Although that was going on, this is really, mm -hmm. really deadly. Please go oh, yeah. into more detail. So the violence continues. It starts to escalate. Um, I was scared for my life. So I went to his command. They ended up having him go stay with one of his friends. 
um, just to kind of separate. I filed for legal separation at that point, not divorced, but just to get him out. Mm -hmm. Um, I was still staying in the home that we had purchased. It was in his name. Um, but I was staying there with my son. Um, one of the, the final straws was he came in, um, this would have been May of 2011. Um, I was sitting on my couch. He came into my house, grabbed me by my head, dragged me into the back room, put a shotgun in my face and in front of my son, who at that time was three and was threatening to kill me. Um, I was begging for my life and he ended up allowing me to leave. Um, as long as I let him keep my son there on the premises. So I immediately went to the police, filed a report. They went back to the residence with me. They let him leave with the weapon because it was disassembled by the time they Uh got there. They basically chalked it up to, I was a crazy military spouse and it was all in my head. Um, so they let him leave. He was still staying with his friend. Um, from there, I was getting threats, like via text message saying that he was going to kill me. Um, it was getting really, really bad. I ended up getting a restraining order. Um, so the problem was, is when when that incident happened with the, the shotgun, when I went to go, because I went to go get the restraining order right, right after that happened. This was a Friday. There was no judge available to sign off on the restraining order until Monday. So I called the police because the house was in his name. We were not yeah. divorced yet. But there uh-huh. was no divorce filed at that point. But I was like, listen, I'm fearful for my life. I'm going to Lowe's right now. I can't get the restraining order signed until Monday, but I need to change the locks because he has a key. He's already come into my home, threatened yeah. me with a weapon. I need to do this. And technically by Georgia law, that was illegal, but the police was like, okay, we'll send out a unit. We'll be there while you're doing that. We understand the situation. So as I'm changing all of the locks and the police are standing there, he's messaging me, he's watching me and we don't know from where, um, threatening to kill me. He's like, wait till the police leave. You're, you're dead. Like, and I'm showing them the messages and they were like, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. Like, we don't know where he's at. You know, the best we can say is get all the locks changed, get out of here. And if anybody's following you, don't stop. So I got done changing all the locks. They escorted me out of the neighborhood and I drove to um, a location that he wouldn't know where I was. Uh-huh. So then I came back and he had broken off keys in every single one of my locks, except so for the house. Yeah. Luckily he was overweight at the time and I had a six foot privacy fence that I was still in shape and I was able to jump over the fence. And I still had a key to that back door. So I was able to get into my house. Uh Um, But then from there, we didn't have, so I got the restraining order. We ceased the contact at that point. I wasn't letting him see my son. I wasn't having any contact with him. And then I went home to Michigan for a little bit to visit my family around my birthday, which is in July. Well, I had somebody watching my house while I was gone. And while I was gone, they called me and said, Hey, you have a court summons on your door. You know, your husband just filed for divorce. You need to get back here because in Georgia, the way that he filed it was if I wasn't, if I didn't give a response in like, I think it was like 48 hours, Uh whatever he had in that paperwork would have been 
would have been the terms of the divorce. Correct. So he was trying to get sole custody, all of these things. So I booked it home from Michigan immediately. Like I was literally like sitting down with my family and I was like, I got to go. Um, so got back to Georgia, started the whole divorce process. And then he ended up moving and he started staying with this person that I didn't know who he was. Like I knew that he had some friends from the rear detachment that I was not a fan of. Mm -hmm. Um, because they were like bad seeds and I didn't like what they were about. And I had expressed that to him um, because I had met them in the past. They had come to our house like before all of this happened. And he ended up moving in with this guy named Isaac um, who turns out to be like a complete sociopath. Um, he was like a Charles Manson type person. So my ex-husband at the time definitely mentally beat down, like not with it, um, Mm -hmm. started medication through the military. So they put him on opiates because he had been hit by a couple IEDs. He had hurt his back. Um, like he was pending a level two spinal fusion. Um, he had TBI, he had PTSD. So they put him on antipsychotics. They put him on opiates. They did all of the things. And he kept needing higher dosages because it wasn't enough. And then the military stopped increasing his dose. So he started doing heroin. Um, And by the way, that's not uncommon for people to go from prescription medicine that's taking care of problems from combat. And it's Mm -hmm. it's not a small or it's it's not a large jump to go from there to uh, illegal drugs or even to the hardest of illegal drugs like heroin. Yep. So he started the drug use. Then I really started noticing erratic behavior. And unfortunately, with also the state of Georgia, the way that they do divorces and custody battles is even though I had a restraining order in place with him, for me, I was required by state law because he hadn't physically done anything to my son to still allow Um, visitation. So... Basically, I would make arrangements to do the exchanges in a safe situation. So we continued the custody throughout this time. So that was from basically July until December. And I was noticing like more and more changes like with the the behavior. Um, Then comes December. And this is literally like the just insane to me. Um, Just thinking back about it. But I, I was bartending in Savannah at the time to make some extra money because of going through the divorce and all the lawyer fees. And I didn't make much money as a reservist and I was going to school. So that was about my only income. Um, I started getting messages and this one night I was working and he had never come to Savannah and I, he's like, I'm, I'm downtown. Like I'm in trouble. I'm involved with some really bad people. Like, I don't know what to do. So he came to the bar I was working at. He was like not making sense. I knew he was on drugs. I didn't know what. Um, but at the end of the night, he was like trying to lure me to a parking garage. And like, I'm not dumb. I was like, no, you can meet me up by my car, you uh-huh. know, in public and we can, we can talk. So he did. And I had a friend with me at the time because I wasn't going to meet him by myself. I was with another, uh, E5 male, um, bigger than my 
soon to be ex-husband because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, And he asked if we could give him a ride back to post. And so we were like, okay, that's fine. We know you're in trouble, man. Like, we'll take you. So he gets in my back seat. I'm driving down 95, heading back towards the Fort Stewart. And I hear the safety go on a handgun. And I feel something on the back of my head. And he starts reaching for the door because I'm driving. He's sitting behind me. He was trying to open the door because he was like, going to shoot me in the head and then throw me out of the door as I was driving down the highway. So luckily my friend that was sitting in the passenger seat, he screamed at me to pull over, grabbed my ex and threw him out in the street, like on the, not in the road, but out, <laughs> out on the side of the road. Right. Like there's like a, a side road. There's a gas station that goes uh-huh. down to the back of Fort Stewart. It was kind of like right in that area. And that was the last time that I saw him. So then the next weekend was his visitation weekend. Mind you, I reported all of this to his unit. Um, the next weekend was my son. My son had to go see him, made arrangements, dropped him off on Friday. Saturday morning, I get a phone call. It's like 7.30 in the morning. You need to come get your son. He's been taken into state custody. Your husband has been arrested. And I'm thinking, for what? Like, and they wouldn't tell me. So the social worker that had my son told me, it's really bad. I can't tell you what's going on, but come get him. So I was living in Savannah at the time, actually Pooler. Um, I flew back to Post. Um, I actually met her at that gas station where the last place I saw my ex was. Got my son, you know, came back. Had to wait till Monday, obviously, because duty hours. First thing Monday morning, I'm calling first sergeant from his unit. I'm like, listen, top, four soldiers from your unit were arrested. One of them was my husband. He had my son in his custody. I need to know what's going on. And he kept on playing dumb. And he kept on calling me ma'am, which really pissed me off. Um, I'm like, I'm not a ma'am. I'm a, I'm an E5, like I'm a soldier. Like I know that if I had four soldiers in my unit arrested, I would know why. And I was like, with him, with my son being in his custody, I need to know. And he wouldn't yeah. tell me. And then later on that evening, an article came out on the news that four soldiers from Fort Stewart had been arrested for murder and were being held in Liberty County. And my heart just sank because I knew that that's, that was him. And that's how I found out. Um, I was getting death threats once he was put in jail. Um, basically the story was the people that they killed. It was a 19 year old soldier. He was about to get out of the army. He was involved in their group. So I guess I'll get to that. So this Isaac guy had created this group called Fear. Um, Forever ready, always enduring. Uh, And he had a plan to basically overthrow the government was the ultimate goal. Like they had a list of people that they were going to kill from officials at Fort Stewart, the community, police, mayor, 
all the way up to at the time it was Obama was serving in office. Mm-hmm. Um, they had plans of poisoning the apple supply because um, like they had connections in Washington state, which is a big supplier of apples. They were going to poison the water supply. Like they had all of these crazy ideas. Like they became this like anti-government, like terrorist group essentially. Um, and this kid wanted out. He didn't want to be a part of it anymore. He just wanted to leave the army and just leave all of that behind. Well, because he knew too much, they used to go shooting out in this like wooded area in Little Wissy, Georgia, which is outside of Post. And they were like, well, man, you're about to leave. Like, let's go have one last hurrah. Well, 19-year-old soldier brings 17-year-old girlfriend. And they go out to the woods. Um, They were executed. Both of them were shot in the back of the head, left hoping that the alligators would get them because it was right by a pond out in Georgia. Um, but what they failed to realize is on the other side of that water source was kind of like a hunting fishing lodge. And the next morning, two fishermen came and saw the bodies laying by the side of the water and reported it. So they didn't have a motive at the time. But then one of the guys that was part of it ended up confessing that Friday night before the arrests were made when I was called to go get my son. Um, so uh, Isaac Aguigui had killed his wife and made it look like an accident back in July when- I want to make sure that people didn't miss that. The, the close mm-hmm. buddy that Anthony is hanging out with has already murdered his wife. And when I yeah. said just domestic abuse, I know some of you just got frustrated with that. I'm, I'm not ever diminishing. No spouse should ever be abused in a marriage. But this wasn't back of the hand. This wasn't a belt. This is a knife, a gun, and I am really going to kill you. And we mm-hmm. actually do kill a few people. And my buddy's already killed his wife and Landry's yeah. next. Mm-hmm. So she was killed and I was supposed to be killed because both of us were E5s in the military. So because I was still married, I still had what's called SGLI insurance policy. Yep. Yes. So, and so did she, she was an E5. She was pregnant at the time. He had killed her, made it look like an accident. Um, at the time, this was back in July, um, of 2011. he, he made it look like she fell down the stairs because she had a medical condition where she would sometimes collapse. And so it was easy to make it look like it didn't, it wasn't like Mel, like it wasn't him. But then after this whole murder thing, they reopened the case and found out later that he had actually poisoned her um, and killed her. Um, I was supposed to be killed for my SGLI for the same reasons because they were going to use that money to buy more weapons because they had been stockpiling weapons for months and Fort Stewart knew it. And this was a big problem too. They, they had been seen taking weapons from, you know, different training uh, exercises, ammunition, that sort of thing. And they had been watching, but they didn't act. Um, When I picked up my son from the social worker, the day that he, my ex was arrested, I had to go back to my old residence because I still had a key because his diaper bag and everything was there. When I walked in, it was a weapons cache. 
Like there was weapons, like military grade weapons, handguns, you know, uh, there was M4s, there was tripods, there was magazines loaded, unloaded. Um, in my grill that was in the backyard, they had actually burned the evidence from the murder scene, uh-huh. um, which they later found. And when I saw all of this, I immediately called the police and reported it. Um, nobody ever followed up with me, but the ATF ended up coming in, seizing oh, all of that. Firearms, of course, when you're talking mm-hmm. that kind of guns, they're going to get involved and say, what on earth is going on right now? Yep. So that happened. So that was December of 2011. I ended up um, like trying to find help because they ended up, so because I, I had a child with him, I was still getting child support mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but then his commander had the option of continuing the child support um, and just marking him as being incarcerated or counting him AWOL and that stops everything. Yeah. And this was right before Christmas of 2011, his commander decided to count him AWOL, which stopped his pay, which then yeah. left me with nothing. Right. So I have a toddler with no income. I just lost everything. Um, and I was, I was like at a complete loss. So I ended up like, luckily I still had the, the bartending job. I ended up getting help from a chaplain on post. Mm-hmm. He got, it was like $500, but it was enough to get me out of that area at least until things calmed down yeah so i didn't really have any place to go at that time i was still in the savannah area um and the investigation started reporters were coming to my door like i was living in a gated community at the time i had to move like literally overnight um because i was being bombarded by press um, and I didn't want to talk cause I didn't know what was going on right. and I was terrified. So eventually, um, this one gentleman, amazing guy, I'm very thankful for him still keep in contact with him to this day. He sends me Christmas cards every year. Um, Elliot Blair, he was from the Bloomberg newsroom. Um, he was in on the confessions and warned me that there was still a target on my back and mm-hmm. my son. Um, I was still getting death threats from jail. Like he was like, my ex would call me and tell me that there was people on the outside. If I talked, if I said anything like that, I would be killed and my son would be killed. Um, so then fast forward to February, (laughs) right before Valentine's day, (laughs) um, our divorce is scheduled to be final. And I walk into the courtroom haven't seen him since that day that I dropped him off by the gas station yeah. before the murders. Um, they bring him out in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. And I ran out of the courtroom because everybody, you know, it's a public thing. Yeah. The people sitting in the courtroom, you just hear everybody go. <gasps> and I'm like, Oh my God. Like it all like sank in at that moment, you know, because it's like I had been in like flight mode for, everything that was happening Uh and then to see him. So I ran out of the courtroom. My attorney kind of calmed me down, came back in and we ended up getting through the divorce proceedings. It was like 10 seconds. The judge basically was like, well, clearly you lost all your rights and ma'am, I'm sorry. Like we'll make this fast. And it was like, sign off done, like sole custody to mom. 
And then I ended up getting out of Georgia and moving, like hiding. Um, I had a friend that was like a private investigator and he tried to find me for years. Um, but I stayed like basically from like, like 2011 when that happened to about 2013, 14, I was pretty quiet. Um, yeah. cause I was, I was afraid I was going to die. I didn't know who was watching. I didn't know where I was safe. Um, and I ended up moving back up North and I got a job with Verizon, um, got into sales, which was like a soul sucking job, which <laughs> I was like, I was good at it, but like after a couple of years, so I started with them in like 2013. And then by 2016, I really started to notice the effects of the trauma. Um, I internalized everything. Like I didn't talk about what I went through. Like if you didn't know me back when that happened, you you wouldn't have known that I went through anything because I didn't talk about it. Um, But then that's when, like I talked about earlier, the panic attacks started happening. Um, The being sick in the mornings, the anger. um, I just like I was falling apart like I used to joke around like I was like a fainting goat because like when I would get too stressed out I would like pass out uh-huh. um I I actually was life flighted um one time that's a fun story um I I was working on my PTSD because I had started counseling in, in 2017 um after I had started CrossFit with my friend who was also an army veteran um and I was trying to do little things at a time to kind of like challenge myself because yeah. I, I became a hoarder. Like I, I wouldn't leave my house. Like I would literally order everything like Amazon food, uh-huh. like you name it. Like I had cardboard boxes in my garage, like stacked to the ceiling because I would not leave my house. So little by little, I started to try to challenge myself. Well, this one time I, this was back in 2017, I was asked to go to an outdoor concert with friends during the day. And I was like, Okay, but here's the deal. If we do this, you cannot leave me by myself. Well, I wasn't drinking at that time because I gave up drinking because of my dad. Um, Mm -hmm. When I found out that he was an addict, I was like, alcohol does not fit in my life. I don't want to be part of that. So I was sober. They were not. They did what people do and they left me. Well, apparently I was found face down in a field by myself, like basically unconscious. And they ended up life flighting me because they thought that I had a heart attack. So I got life flighted off an island and got thrown in an ambulance, taken to a local hospital, woke up and had paperwork that said something about anxiety and panic attacks. Mm -hmm. And then I got sent like a $40,000 bill that the VA for the longest time said, Oh, sorry, we're not covering that. And I'm like, so actually, it was like a year and a half ago, they sent me a letter in the mail that said, oh, we're our bad. You actually were covered for that. Yeah. I know you went to collections, but we, we took care of it. So yeah. that's VA well, healthcare I, for you. <laughs> to the listener, you've gone through unimaginable trauma um, in the Army and in your marriage with Anthony. You go to try to get some help and they start pushing pills towards you because you're not sleeping. You've got a lot of anxiety, all of the panic um, and Mm -hmm. uh, the stress that you've been through. And it's I want to give the Veterans Administration and mental health community the credit. They're doing their best to try to help you. It's not just it's just not enough. 
And you mentioned that your life was transformed when you found sports. Now I got to pause for a second because um, I think sports have been the way a lot of people got out of the hood when they were growing up or they got out of a very Mm -hmm. bad um, family when they were at home. Sports was their way out. And in your case, sports was the way out for you. I want you to talk about that in just a second, Landry. But before you do that, um, we've got a sponsor and the guy who created an organization called Gold Ministries, his name is Will Parton. And Will basically started a ministry. It's It uses sports and it is transforming people's lives and basically taking sports and using it for a much greater purpose. So, hey, for everybody uh, listening, I want you to check out Will from Go Ministries and how they use sports to change lives. Hi, my name is Will Parton. I'm the president of Go Ministries. Go Ministries empowers local leaders to make disciples. Over the past 30 years, I've seen our ministry go from one family, one church, and one school to over 300 local leaders making disciples in 150 different communities through church planting, sports, and medical. And we're getting ready to expand into other countries. The way that we define a disciple-making culture is when mentorship, mission, and multiplication are present. When there's that one-on-one mentorship between two people that are sharing the gospel, we believe that discipleship is taking place. And then when a group of people are gathering together and they're on mission together, serving their community that surrounds them, that's another part of discipleship. And then lastly, you can't be a disciple or disciple maker if multiplication isn't the final goal. So would you please join us in our disciple making movement and our disciple making culture by going to gomen.org. Okay, Landry, now that we're back, I want you to tell people about this transition. And again, if you're driving and you can't see her on the YouTube channel right now, Landry is a very impressive woman. I'm telling you, a power lifter's body. uh, And I spend time in the gym every week. I'm not as big. Uh, I don't have as much muscle muscle tissue as what I'm looking at right now. So how did CrossFit become this passion for you? And more importantly, how did it really change your life? Okay. So when my friend drug me to CrossFit, that was the saving of my life. Because as I mentioned earlier, I was ready to give up. Like I did not feel like I had a purpose. I did not feel like I had a community. Used, beat up, bullied, tormented virtually your entire life. Yep. (laughs) So I just needed a safe space and I needed that camaraderie. Like, even though the military, like I said, like had some scars like that I carry with me, um, the, the relationships that I established with so many people was so special and like getting out of the military, like, unless you've done that, like you don't understand how like isolated you feel. And then like, as a female, like I would get all the time, like as a civilian, like I'm too hardened, I'm too military, I need to be more bubbly and flirty, but that's not me. Um, So like, I didn't feel like I had a place. But then when I found CrossFit, it was like, wow, like these people, like they're driven, they're like, they're cool, like they're fun. And like, I was always super competitive. And I was just very excited to like feel a part of something and like work Mm -hmm. for something that like mattered. Like, you know, I started so when I started CrossFit, like I was actually pretty overweight. Like I was like a puffle lump. Like I was over 200 pounds, um, mushy. Like you wouldn't know that I do what I do now. 
Um, I ended up buckling down. I lost over 50 pounds. Um, and from doing the exercises and I got, um, a nutrition coach at that time, um, and lost all that weight and focused on competitions and, um, just training. And that was what helped me. So I literally would like train, you know, five days a week. And then I had my counseling session with the VA, Mm -hmm. um, once a week, every Thursday. So that was my routine for a couple of years. Um, and then somebody, oh, well, more than one person reached out like after a couple of years of me doing CrossFit and they're like, so like, you're good at CrossFit, but like, you're really strong, um, like too strong for CrossFit. Cause like generally CrossFitters are like, like smaller people. It's functional fitness. So you're not going to be super, uh, muscular. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, CrossFit was a good fit for me because I was a gymnast. Um, so I picked up a lot of that stuff like naturally, cause I already like kind of had that background. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was like, okay, like what's this powerlifting thing all about? And, um, I ended up going to the Arnold one year. This would have been 2019. Um, they, my friends took me to the powerlifting meet and I was like, this is cool. I want to do that. And so I started training with a team in May of 2019 and I've been hooked ever since. Um, I've done multiple competitions. Um, I just competed in an all women's meet in December, which was absolutely amazing. I ended up winning overall. It Look was at you. Cool. Way to go. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, it was an amazing meet because like last season was really hard for me because like I had lost my dad. We had gone through a lot of really tough stuff mentally. And so my performance was like, not what it is right now. Um, and I got a new coach who Shane sweat is a mastermind of programming and just like an all around good human. I love him so much. Um, and he has made me so much stronger, like mentally and yeah. physically. But I mean, that meet, um, I squatted over 400 pounds. I benched 242 pounds and I deadlifted 535 pounds at 165 pounds body weight. So now I'm like top 11 all time for my deadlift, top like 30 all time for my total like it's just it's really cool and i just started um meat prep for my next meet which will be in april which is another all women's meet the women's pro-am i'm competing pro day april 16th in cincinnati so i've got my nose to the grindstone and okay so for those people that are watching this right now on youtube the ones that are driving they can't see you but i hope if you're Mm -hmm. listening to a woman who can um deadlift 535 pounds can bench press 242 (laughs) pounds you're getting an idea of what she looks like but just do me a favor for the people that are watching this episode on youtube and show them the guns for just a second (laughs) yeah so Landry is not <laughs> all a small girl. She no. has massive arms and um, is one of the literally the top power lifters of all time. And your career is just getting started, right? So you have a couple more yeah. competitions coming up. Oh yeah, I am. Um, I'm staying in this for the long haul. Like I, I have some big goals, and like you said, I'm just getting started. Like I've only been powerlifting since 2019. 
Um, but I'm all in and, you know, I've, I've really used the powerlifting platform to help spread a message about the mental health, the PTSD, you know, um, I am sponsored by a company, Sisters of Iron. Um, they are an all women's apparel company out of California. Uh She actually, the owner, Susie is amazing. I met her in Vegas this past summer. Um, she started following me too at the very beginning and she was like a small little entity, like she was working out of her garage. So we've got grown over the years since 2017 together. And I was her first official sponsored athlete. So I was like super excited about that. Um, I'm a coach and I work primarily with women. Um, I, I want to give back to the community. I, you know, with what I went through mentally, like, I, I feel like for a long, a long time, I used to be like, why me? Like, why did I go through this? And I used to just kind of have a pity party. But then I realized like, I went through this because I was strong enough to survive and tell my story. And now I want to help other women survive. I want other women to gain the confidence, gain the strength that I have over the years, whatever that looks like. Um, So that's been kind of my mission for the last few, few years is, you know, coaching women, being a friend of women, being a safe space, uh, and watch, you know, that confidence yeah. grow. That's like so rewarding to me. Yeah. Landry, you just did the perfect way of summarizing this episode. Listen, you're a very small, a very strong woman, but I don't think you're nearly as strong physically as a competitive power lifter as you are mentally and emotionally. The fact that you were able to face down fear, and I'm shamelessly using now the organization that Isaac and your ex-husband Anthony started, this terrorism organization to take over the government and murder people. The fact that you had the internal strength to face that and not give up shows that you really are unbeatable. And I'm proud of you, Landry, for using powerlifting now as a platform Thank you for telling the story, for not hiding it behind, hoarding it in a bo- in boxes, you know, in your home, but getting out and telling the story because there's lots of people that need to hear this story. So thanks for being a guest today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for giving me a voice. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I learned from this episode with Landry. That person that you're working next to, they may be going through unimaginable things at the house and you just don't know it because they don't mention it. If they don't mention it, there may be not a lot you and I can do about it. But Landry describes several times during this episode, going to friends, going to her boss or her husband's boss and telling them something is wrong and nobody listened and nobody did anything about it. And unfortunately, more than one person died as a result of this. My takeaway? is that when somebody says, Jeff, there's a problem, I should at least be able to find the time to sit down, listen, and do whatever I can, as little or as much as that might be, to try to help make a difference. That might have saved somebody's life in the case of Landry's story. I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Unbeatable. I hope you were really inspired by this incredibly powerful woman. And I'm obviously using the word power both physically and mentally here. 
We really do have some of the best fans on earth who follow this podcast. And for the first time ever, we're going to start to introduce for you some of our super fans, some of our fans of the week. And the first ever fan of the week is John Case, who has been following us on social media. Thank you, johncase.14 at Facebook for being our fan of the week. We're proud of you. And if you follow us on social media, all you got to do is just make some comments, interact with each other on social media, and who knows, maybe next week you become our fan of the week. I want to tell you about this community that we're building. We call it the Unbeatable Army. It's people that have gone through incredible things. They get connected with each other and we get connected with them, not just during a podcast episode, but all week long. If you want to be part of the Unbeatable Army, all you got to do is just go to unbeatablearmy.com. We'll sign you up. We'll give you some free giveaways. But more than anything, we'll get you connected with some people that are going through incredible things. And they're demonstrating that they're unbeatable also. Thanks for joining me on this episode. See you right back here next week.